You may have noticed that we're not in 2 Samuel this morning. We decided we would press pause on that series. And this morning, we're going to focus our attention on what we just witnessed. We just watched four individuals walk into some water and let someone dunk them under the water and then bring them back up again. Now, there's a sense in which this is a strange thing to do, right? If you've grown up in a Christian environment, this might seem normal enough to you. But if you haven't, and even if you have, when you take a step back from the familiarity of it, it's a little peculiar, right? And yet baptism isn't something new. This is actually an ancient practice. Various peoples in different religions have incorporated some version of what we just witnessed. Even in ancient pagan religions, baptism was a ceremony of cleansing and initiation. The Israelites practiced something called mikvah, which involved washing or bathing to, to establish purity as required by the religious code of God. To enter the temple, you to be deemed clean, you had to go through a washing ritual. The mikvah was also part of initiation into the Jewish religion. To become part of the Jewish people, every male had to be circumcised. And after seven days, that candidate was then immersed in flowing water. And when he emerged, he was considered an official Israelite. So Christians aren't the only ones who practice some version of baptisms, Christians certainly aren't the only ones who have rituals, right? Every culture has rituals. Our world is full of rituals. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but we have all kinds of rituals. We have greeting rituals. You ever thought about the different ways that people greet each other? Typical version in the United States is a handshake, but in other cultures, it's a, it's a hug or it's, it, it's a bow or it's a kiss. We have eating rituals, things that we do when we gather around the table together. We have family rituals, things that we only do with our brothers and sisters, with our parents when we all gather together. We have rituals for weddings and rituals for funerals. We have holiday rituals. It's common practice to put a tree in the home sometime after Thanksgiving, right? We have societal rituals, things that we do before ball games, like the national anthem. And we have religious rituals. A, a ritual is, is simply a ceremonial practice that carries with it some significance or meaning. Right? And so the question I want to try to tackle this morning is, what is the significance of the Christian ritual of baptism? Why do Christians practice baptism? In Acts chapter 2 that Vonopah just read for us, we, we actually come to this critical episode in the unfolding story of, of the Bible. Followers of the Jewish religion had come to Jerusalem for what's called the Feast of Weeks. There are three big festivals or, or feasts in the Jewish religion. There's the, the Feast of the First Fruits that's called, that's associated with Passover. 
And then there's the Feast of Weeks that comes 50 days after Passover, which is why it's also called Pentecost, meaning 50. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles that comes after that. And every able-bodied Jewish male was commanded by God to come to Jerusalem for those three festivals. So at least three times a year, everyone who was able would, would, would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festivals. And in Acts chapter 2, people from all over had, had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. And, and while they were gathered there, something supernatural happened. Jesus had told his followers right before he ascended back to heaven that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. The Holy Spirit was going to come to guide them, not only to be with them, but to be in them until Jesus returned. Even the Old Testament prophets had, had told of a coming day when God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And suddenly, tongues of fire appeared and rested above the heads of Jesus' disciples. And they began to declare the mighty acts of God in the different languages of those who had come to Jerusalem. Now, this phenomenon caused a stir. It, it gathered a crowd. This was strange. And in fact, some people were confused. They began to say, these people are drunk. And so Peter stands up and in response to the confusion and the commotion, begins to explain that they weren't drunk. It was only 9 a.m. No, this was a manifestation of God's spirit. This is exactly what Jesus and the prophets had said would happen. God had poured out his spirit. And then Jesus began to tell them about Jesus. Or Peter, rather, began to tell them about Jesus. He began to explain to them that Jesus had been attested by God with signs and wonders. That he had come as a, a mighty teacher who would perform miracles. And yet, nonetheless, a group of people had wanted him killed. And so they wrongfully accused Jesus. They, they had him condemned to die on a cross. And yet, even so, their unjust betrayal of Jesus was according to God's perfect plan. Jesus was supposed to go to the cross to atone for sins. And in fact, God had raised Jesus from the dead. And his resurrection had been witnessed by Peter and the apostles and many others. And they believed that Jesus' resurrection revealed that he was the one spoken of by King David in Psalm 16. When David wrote, you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Now we know that that wasn't about David himself because David had died, had been buried, and you could go to his gravesite. No, David was prophesying about a future descendant, a Messiah who would be resurrected from the dead and reign forever. Peter goes on to explain that Jesus was the one prophesied of in, in Psalm 110. This descendant of David, who is also David's Lord, who sits at God's right hand. And the question is raised, how could David's descendant also be his Lord? And the answer is because he was the son of God made flesh. Jesus, the one crucified, is both Lord 
and Messiah. That was Peter's sermon to this listening crowd. And it says that when Peter finished his sermon, the listeners were pierced to the heart. They were deeply troubled. They were convicted and they said to Peter and to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said in reply, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that you see poured out on us will be given to you if you repent and are baptized. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. To use a military term, it's an about face. It's a 180. It's a turn. And in context, after hearing Peter's sermon about Jesus, what he tells them is that they should change their minds about him. Up to this point, they had rejected Jesus or perhaps ignored Jesus. But now they should believe in Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. Peter tells them that he's the one you're looking for. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. So repentance is turning from your rejection of Jesus in order to receive him as your Lord. It's trusting in him as your savior and following him as your master. And Peter says that when that happens, so should baptism. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is an act that accompanies repentance and faith in Jesus. It's a ceremony by which a person is submerged into water in response to the message of the gospel. And theologian Bruce Milne identifies at least three things that baptism is. Number one, baptism is a public confession of faith in Jesus. In baptism, you, you really bear the mark. You identify yourself with Jesus and his followers. We just witnessed that. We witnessed four individuals identify themselves with Jesus publicly and with Jesus' followers. To use an analogy, baptism is putting the wedding ring on, so to speak. Through baptism, a person enters into fellowship with those who belong to Christ. Peter, or Paul rather, emphasizes this in Ephesians 4 when he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Baptism unites you with the family of God. It makes you one with the church. This, by the way, is why I believe baptism should take place in the context of a local assembly of believers. It isn't a private spiritual exercise. As one pastor put it recently, baptism isn't a high five to your individualistic faith journey. It's, it's a confession of faith in Jesus that takes place in the context of a gathered assembly of believers. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, 
and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. See, genuine salvation is a, is a personal faith that goes public. It's an inner trust that is outwardly conveyed. If you believe in your heart, that's personal faith. If you confess with your mouth, that's public declaration. And baptism is that initial confession of a person's faith in Christ. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find someone who believes in their heart that Jesus is the risen Lord without confessing that through baptism. There is no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the book of Acts. You won't find it. And so if that's where you find yourself this morning, I'm saying this not to offend you, but to just be really clear, you're in disobedience to Jesus. But before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus commanded his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so if you haven't been baptized, you're not obeying what Jesus said is the initial act of discipleship. And if you're willing to live in disobedience to Jesus, how can you confidently say he's your Lord? And so the first step of discipleship is to be baptized. It's your public confession of faith in Jesus. Secondly, baptism is also a picture of consecration for Jesus. In the Old Testament, the, the, the items that were used in worship, the, the holy items, the utensils in the tabernacle, went through a ritual washing before they were used in service to God. Everything used in worship had to be purified and set apart or made holy. Under the new covenant, it's believers themselves who are considered the holy utensils set apart for worship. Paul even calls believers the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit now comes to dwell in his people who offer their lives in service to him. And so in this way, baptism is the washing ritual that sets a Christ follower apart for holy service. This is why Peter says, repent and be baptized. He's calling them to turn to Jesus and to be consecrated, to be set apart for worship unto God. Listen to how the apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. He says, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. And then Paul goes on and he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. Offer your body as instruments of righteousness. Baptism is this wonderful reminder of your identity and your purpose. You belong to God. You exist for his glory. And you have pledged and committed yourself to him. You've been consecrated. You've been set apart. You've been made holy. So let me press in here. I think one reason a person might avoid baptism 
is because they know that they're not really ready to live set apart. They know that to be baptized publicly is to be all in with Jesus. This is true. But I think it's also true that if a person is unwilling to be baptized, then they likely aren't ready to believe in him as Savior and Lord. I recently found out about a friend of mine I had known for years that unknown to anyone, he had been married for several years. He had gotten married in secret by a justice of the peace and he didn't tell anyone because he wanted to keep it a secret. He avoided social media so that no one would know. He was living in another state so there was no way to know And so none of his friends knew that he was married. Now he went on to confess to me that the reason why he chose to keep it a secret was because he had multiple side relationships. Unbeknownst to his wife and unbeknownst to these other women who he didn't want to know that he was married. And so he was basically living this double life. Married but cheating, and he wanted to be able to have both. And when a person is unwilling to be publicly baptized while they profess faith in Jesus, I could be wrong, but I wonder if, like my friend, they maybe have a sin mistress, that they're not ready to live a fully consecrated life But friends, see, that's why we need baptism, right? We need it because it calls us into faithfulness. It invites us into faithfulness. It it brings our confession of faith in Jesus fully into the light. It sets us apart as belonging to him. And the order is important. So listen to me. The order is not get your life cleaned up and then be consecrated, right? That's not the order. The order is repent and be baptized and let God do the consecrating. And this leads into the final thing that I want us to see about baptism. Baptism is not only a confession and a consecration, but baptism is a plunging into communion with Jesus. When a person is baptized, they're they're dunked underwater. The water covers them completely. And this is significant because baptism is an immersive identification with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in baptism, what we are saying is, I am in union with Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of me, and what belongs to Jesus now belongs to me. His life of perfect obedience is now mine. His death on my behalf for my sins is now mine. His resurrection from the grave and eternal life is now mine. I am in him and he is in me. And everything that I need for life and godliness, I have through my union with Jesus. Sometimes we say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. I believe that's true. But I believe it's a little more than that. I want you to think about this with me. We're just going to do a thought experiment. When two people get married, 
They stand before God in the presence of witnesses and, and they make vows to each other. Now the day before the wedding, did those two people love each other? Of course they did. Were they committed to each other? Yes, they were. But were they married? No, they were not. Something mysterious happens in that ceremony. Through the exchanging of vows and rings, God bestows his blessing and unites a man and a woman together in a one flesh union. And without the ceremony, they're not truly married. And I believe similarly in Christian baptism, a believer is wed to Christ. This isn't to say that the act of baptism has intrinsic power by itself to unite someone to Jesus. But it is to say that baptism holds real meaning and significance. It unites a believer to Christ in a formal and covenantal way. And so listen, without faith, the ritual is meaningless. But when faith is present... That outer action corresponds to an inner work of the Spirit. And something mysterious and wonderful happens. It's a symbol, but it's symbolic of a deep reality. And and this is true of so many ideas of our faith, that the symbol and the reality are thoroughly intertwined. It's really hard to separate them. And so here again is why Peter is saying, repent and be baptized, because the symbol and the reality belong together. The gift of the Holy Spirit is symbolized by water. The inner washing of God is, 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 is symbolized in the outer washing of the water. So you may ask, does baptism save? The answer is no. Baptism doesn't save. God saves. He saves sinners by faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He saves through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit to awaken faith in a heart. But you might also ask, how do you know that you've been rescued from your sins? What frees you from the fear of sin and death and gives you confidence to stand before a holy God? And I would answer, because I'm in Christ. And what has been given to me as a symbol of my union with Jesus is my baptism. And so to stick with the wedding day analogy, baptism crystallizes my faith the way wedding vows solidify my commitment in marriage. There are days when life is hard. My marriage is less than a Hollywood romance. And on those days, I look back to that day. I stood on an altar and I looked my wife in the eyes and I remember the covenant promises that we made to each other. And I touch my wedding ring and I say to myself, I'm married. Melanie is mine and I am hers. And in the same way, I can look back at my baptism and I can say to myself, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I am bound to Christ and he is bound to me. And I belong body and soul to him. And because of that, I have no need to fear. And because of that, I can press on in faith and in obedience. John Calvin said, we must realize that at whatever time we repent and are baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for our whole life. Therefore, as often as we fall away, 
we ought to recall the, rem- the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it so that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sin. In other words, put your confidence firmly in the covenant promises God has made to you. Don't put your confidence in a feeling. I spent years trying to do that. It doesn't work. Don't put your confidence in the fickleness of your obedience. Put your confidence in something objective. We must learn to live by faith and not by experience. We must learn what it means to remember our baptisms, that in whatever life situations we find ourselves in, to say, I know at least one thing is true about me. I know that I have been united with Christ. I am in him. I am secure. I am held. I am loved. I wonder this morning, can you say that? Can you say, I am in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you repented of your ignorance, of your avoidance, maybe even of your rejection of Jesus? And have you turned to him in faith to declare him your Lord? Have you been baptized? Have you confessed that faith publicly? Perhaps the Spirit of God is working in your heart this morning through testimony, through Scripture, helping you to see your need for Jesus. Maybe this morning you're ready to repent and be baptized. Maybe this morning you've been holding out on baptism. And it's time for you to publicly wed yourself to Christ and to be obedient to his command. If you're ready to confess Jesus as Lord through the waters of baptism, we would love to help you with that. We would love to help you stand before this body and affirm your faith in Jesus and to go under the water and to come back up again and to be wed to Christ. So there are two ways you can respond. One, there are, there are connect cards in the seat in front of you. And if you want to be baptized, there's a little box that says baptism. You can just put your name on there, a way for us to contact you and check baptism. You can also do this online through the little QR codes. Two, if you'd like to speak with a pastor, we're going to make ourselves available immediately after this gathering in the prayer room. So if you go through this door, it's going to be the second door on your left. It's a prayer room. We would love to talk with you, to counsel you, to answer questions you may have. But I want to invite you to respond if the Spirit is pressing on your heart that you need to respond. If you need to believe in Jesus, if you need to be baptized, be obedient. For those of us who have already been baptized, this morning I want to invite you to remember your baptism. Baptism is given to us so that we might remember all of our days that we are God's beloved and that we belong to him. Your life is now hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory.
Amen? Let's respond as the Spirit leads. Let's pray together.